I don't like it when uh, people say, well, we can just agree to disagree regarding biblical issues because the Bible is very clear on most issues. And when people say we can agree to disagree, it usually means that they just don't want to dig into the Word of God and they don't really want to believe what it says, let alone adhere to what it says. That said, when it comes to end times, to eschatology, which is the doctrine of last things, and then to what we call apocalyptic literature, there really is confusion. And agreeing to disagree isn't a cop-out, no, but it's indeed the proper way to respond to others who disagree with us on this. So hold your view, absolutely. Hold your view. And hold your view strongly, yes, but show a lot of love and grace at the same time as you hold your view. Because apocalyptic literature purposefully uses symbolic language and symbolic language isn't always easy to interpret it's interesting because the men throughout the ages that i respect the most we all agree virtually on every biblical doctrine and here at fcc we not only put our confidence in the fact that what we believe here is not only radically biblical, but that we also stand on the shoulders of the best people throughout the ages who have believed and preached the same things that we believe and preach today, except on this issue. Yeah, we agree with many great theologians on this issue regarding the return of Christ, yes. But there's also a lot of great theologians who disagree with us. And again, we're talking about people that agree with us on virtually everything else. So again, be humble, show a lot of grace, and please understand that this issue in particular is not easy, and we could be wrong in a few things here and still be okay. Generally, as a church, we hold to a pre-mill, pre-trib rapture view. I'll explain that in a second. But I don't really like labels and I don't really like boxes and very few people fit 100% into boxes like these on these issues. That said, let's go ahead and take a look at this today. This is a different kind of sermon for me, which makes me extremely uncomfortable. I don't really have a text. I don't like that. But I believe it's needed before we get back to the text in 1 Thessalonians 4. First, let me start off by pointing out the fact, which is this. That Jesus is coming back. And this has always been the great hope for the people of God. In John 14.3, Jesus says that He will come back. And then later on, when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, two angels then came and said to His disciples, This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, He will come back in the same way that you've seen Him go into heaven. In Revelation 1.7, John writes, Look, He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. And this event will indeed be a fitting return for the King of Kings. Now look, Christ's second coming is our blessed hope. And we should all eagerly desire and long for Christ's return in glory. And while we don't know exactly when He will return, we all need to be ready for His return. Hey, Christ wins. Amen? <laughs> that Christ wins and we win with Him. And the reality of Christ's return is meant to produce hope in us. God knows exactly what He's doing. Christ will indeed make all things new. 
He will indeed reign forever with his people, with us. How exciting is that? And we should be excited about that. So be ready, be looking, be prepared to see him. I say, oh, what great motivation for us in Christ to pursue a life of holiness and of growing sanctification during our brief sojourning in this world. And oh, that this reality would awaken and encourage the unbeliever to turn to Christ in true, saving, repentant faith. As John writes at the end of the book of Revelation, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. So, we're eager. Anybody? We're excited. And we are to be ready for the return of Christ in glory. That said... There's one group that believes that Jesus already returned in A.D. 70, the preterists. Actually, there's a thing called partial preterism, and then there's a thing called full preterism. I'm going to try to explain full preterism just a bit, and inevitably a preterist will come up to me and tell me that I misrepresented them. Please know that if that's the case, that is definitely not on purpose. And this is only a general overview of these end times belief. And all of them. Now, according to full preterism, all prophecy in the Bible is history. It's past. It's already happened. The term preterism comes from the Latin praetor, which means past. So preterism is the view that the biblical prophecies concerning the end times have already been fulfilled. The book of Revelation, therefore, is a picture of first century conflicts and not a description of what will occur in the end times in the future. So Preterism asserts that all the end time prophecies of Revelation were fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. And they assert that Jesus' return to earth was a spiritual return and not a physical one. One theologian sums up the full preterist position with these words. He says this, The coming of Christ in judgment was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Satan and the Antichrist have already been thrown into the lake of fire. The kingdom of God has arrived. The resurrection is understood in spiritual terms. The great commission has been fulfilled. All things have been made new. The old heaven and earth have passed away. The new heaven and earth have come. The promised restoration has arrived. And the world now continues as it is ad infinitum. Now, most people believe that the book of Revelation was written at the end of the first century, around A.D. 90, maybe even a little later. Many second century historians attest to this, but the preterists believe that the book of Revelation was written at least 25 years before that because it had to have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Preterists also believe that what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said this on the Mount of Olives, that that strengthens their argument, because after Jesus described some of the end times happenings, he says these words, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Matthew twenty four thirty four. The preterist takes this to mean that everything Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24 had to have happened within one generation of Jesus saying those words, which to them means that the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was Judgment Day. I don't agree with the preterist view for a number of reasons, and I believe that Jesus' mention of this generation is simply talking about the generation that's alive to see the beginning of the events that are described in Matthew 24. That said, 
I know some preterists. And guess what? They love the Lord. They are seeking to passionately live a God-honoring and sanctified life for the glory of God. And they aren't wacky people. They're not wacky people. And in this area of doctrine, end-time doctrine in particular, we can really agree to disagree even strongly, and we can both still glorify God greatly in our lives. And guess what? You may even run into a preterist and not even know it. Be godly. Be godly. That said, for those of us who are still looking for the return of Christ, look, the specifics of the return are debated. So while we can agree that Christ is coming back, and while we are excited about that, and while we're ready and preparing ourselves for His return with a growing, sanctified life more and more and more, look, the specifics of what that exactly looks like are disputed. Now, the main area of contention has to do with the millennium. You ask, what's the millennium? Well, The millennium, which means a thousand years, or the millennial kingdom, is mentioned six times in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7. The issue is this. What are the thousand years, and when will Christ return with respect to those thousand years? Let's go ahead and read that. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 through 7. If you can't find Revelation, I cannot help you. Revelation 20, verses 2 through 7. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him. How long? A thousand years. So again, the issue is, what do we make of this thousand years? Is it literal? Is it allegorical? Is it figurative? When exactly will it happen? There are three main views regarding the Lord's coming. The first view that I want to look at is what's called the post-millennial view. The post-millennial view believes that the return of Christ will happen after the millennium, post-millennium. That said, they don't believe that the millennium is necessarily a literal thousand years. No, they believe that thousand years simply means a long period of time. They also believe that Christ will return after Christians, not Christ himself, has established the kingdom on this earth. So post-millennialism believes that this world will become better and better with the entire world eventually becoming Christianized. So according to this view, the gospel in this church age will grow like a mustard seed until it becomes a large tree. Or it'll spread like leaven in bread until it permeates the whole earth so that the world becomes Christianized. After that happens, 
then Christ will return. Postmillennialism rests on God's purpose of being glorified in his creation. He, it, it believes in his sovereign power to accomplish his purpose and that God has equipped his church with the necessary gifts and power to accomplish that purpose. It also has a strong hope in the power of the gospel to spread and to transform lives. So this view greatly encourages evangelism. And all of that is very good. I mean, we must share the gospel with the lost, right? God is indeed powerful and the church will indeed prevail in the end because Christ wins and we, his people, win with him. That said, the picture of the end times in the New Testament is one where godlessness grows and where the persecution of the godly increases, not decreases. From the book of Revelation, it's easy to see that the world will be a terrible place in the future. And then in 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes the last days as terrible times, as perilous times, and as getting worse and not as getting better. Along with that, current world conditions don't reflect any sort of increasing righteousness, but rather an increasing rebellion against God. Postmillennialists also use a non-literal method of interpreting unfulfilled prophecy, and they often interpret prophetic passages allegorically. That's a problem, because when the normal meaning of a passage is abandoned, then its meaning can become entirely subjective, and that's very dangerous. Look, we have hundreds of examples in Scripture of prophecy being literally fulfilled. And I believe the ones that weren't literally fulfilled will indeed be literally fulfilled in the future as God said they would be. Note that some great men in the past have held this view about the end times, post-millennialism. I mean, many of the Puritans whom I love had this view, including John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, and one of my missionary heroes, William Carey. People who agree with this on, 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 with us on virtually every, everything else but this. And again, it shows how hard end times doctrine can be and how we need to show grace to those who disagree with us. That said, I'm not a post-millennialist. The second main view regarding the Lord's coming is the amillennial view. This view holds that the thousand years of Christ's reign should be interpreted symbolically rather than as a literal period of a thousand years. So the first coming of Christ was the inauguration of the kingdom and his return will be the consummation of the kingdom. So to them, we are in the millennial kingdom right now. And again, to them, the thousand years is symbolic and it points to everything that will happen in this present church age. The amillennial position sees the book of Revelation as having numerous camera angle approaches. This view says that the book of Revelation consists of seven sections that run parallel to each other, with each section depicting the church and the world from the time of Christ's first coming to the time of His return. To all millennialists, the thousand years spoken of in Revelation 20 where Satan is bound is figurative and it's fulfilled in a spiritual sense. See, Satan's bound right now in that he's restricted from implementing his evil plans. Yes, he can still perform evil, but he can't deceive the nations until the final battle. So there won't be a literal future seven-year worldwide tribulation. Once the symbolic thousand years are over, Satan is released to practice his full deception for a little while, 
Armageddon will then take place, and then the physical return of Christ will happen. This will be followed by the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked for judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth will come. Amillennialists argue that because the Jews rejected their Messiah, that the kingdom was taken away from them and it was given to the church. Believers in Christ are now the true seed of Abraham and the promises that God gave to Israel, the nation in the Old Testament that haven't yet been fully realized by them are now given spiritually to the church. Augustine in the 5th century held this view and this was the primary view of most of the reformers in the 16th century. So again, don't just write this off because many great people have believed this view and many still do. That said, I have some concerns about this view. I mean, it certainly doesn't look like Satan is bound. On top of that, when I read about the conditions in the Bible that it presents about the environment in the millennial kingdom, those things are not happening right now. Several passages in the Old Testament describe a future period of glory that's way greater than this present age, but also that isn't descriptive of the eternal state. No, it describes the millennium. For example, Isaiah 65.20 describes a time when infants won't die, and those who die in youth will be a hundred, and those who don't live to a hundred will be thought of as accursed. That certainly is not true right now, and it won't be true in the new heavens and new earth where there is no death. No, that seems to be referring to the millennium. It's not happening now. Look, the Bible speaks of the conditions during the millennium as perfect, physically and spiritually. It'll be a time of peace, joy, prosperity, and comfort. It'll be a time of obedience, holiness, truth, and the knowledge of God. It'll be a time of of shouting and singing and joy with Christ reigning. And look, Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with a young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurry nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That is a description of what will take place in the millennial kingdom. And again, that certainly is not happening right now. On top of that, I believe that all millennialists go too far in spiritualizing God's promises to Israel. He made certain promises to Israel as a nation. And I believe that he literally will keep all those promises that he made specifically to them as a nation. The third view regarding the Lord's coming is the premillennial view. Premillennialists believe that the millennial kingdom is a literal thousand year reign of Christ on this earth. This view believes that the return of Christ will happen before the millennial kingdom as described in Revelation 20. So Christ will return to the earth at his second coming. Satan will then be bound for a thousand years and Christ will establish himself as king in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David for those thousand years. Now, why this view? It goes to how one interprets the Bible. 
Again, we believe that the best way, the most tried and true way, the most responsible way to interpret the Bible is by the literal, historical, grammatical approach. That means that Scripture is to be interpreted in a way that's consistent within its context. That Scripture always must be taken in its normal, regular, plain, literal meaning, unless the context of the passage dictates otherwise. See, a literal interpretation doesn't eliminate the possibility of figures of speech being used, but instead, it encourages the interpreter to not read figurative language into the meaning of a passage unless, it, unless it's appropriate for the context. So premillennialists understand that Israel, the nation, Abraham's physical descendants, and the church, which consists of all New Testament believers, those are two distinct groups. That's important, especially when it comes to passages that deal with the promises that God made to Israel specifically, both fulfilled and unfulfilled promises. The premillennialist believes that those promises shouldn't be applied to the church because they were specifically made to Israel and those promises to Israel were unconditional. And since they haven't been literally fulfilled yet, premillennialists assert that they will indeed be literally fulfilled in the future. When? In the millennial kingdom. See, the unconditional covenants demand a literal physical return of Christ to establish his kingdom and fulfill all his promises. The Abrahamic covenant promised Israel a land, a posterity and ruler, and a spiritual blessing. The Palestinian covenant promised Israel a restoration to the land and occupation of the land. The Davidic covenant promised Israel a king from David's line who would rule forever, giving the nation rest from all their enemies. It's at the second coming in the millennial kingdom that those covenants will be fulfilled as Israel is regathered from the nations, converted, and restored to the land under the rule of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is discussed in Romans chapter 11 where it says that Israel is the olive tree and that we Christians, we have been grafted in for a time. So God's turned away from Israel to the church for now, but there's a time in the future when God will turn back to Israel. Verse 25 of Romans 11 says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. So it seems clear in Romans 11 that God still has a plan for national Israel in the future. It seems that here, God has a precise number of Gentiles that He's going to save. We don't know when the last Gentile will be saved, presumably at the end of the tribulation, but that will happen. And when that does happen, then all Israel will be saved, verse 26. Now what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that every individual in the nation of Israel will turn to the Lord. It simply means this that the nation as a whole will be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, just as a nation as a whole, but not every individual in it, was rejecting the Lord. So a distinction is made here between Israel and the church. But God will not only save Israel as a whole by grace through faith in Christ, but in the millennial kingdom, God will also keep all His promises that He made to them as a people. And so, it's by applying a literal method of interpreting Scripture that results in the pieces of the puzzle coming together. And just as all the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' first coming were fulfilled literally, 
we should expect the prophecies regarding his second coming to be fulfilled literally as well. And premillennialism does that. Here's a general timeline of the premillennial view when it comes to the end times. Note that not every premillennialist agrees with the rapture of the church and when that will happen, but this is the common view according to end times literature, the Olivet Discourse, Revelation, Daniel. One, the rapture of the church. Christ comes in the clouds to snatch away all those who trust in him. At this same time, the dead in Christ will be resurrected and taken to heaven too. From the premillennialist perspective, this is the next event in the eschatological timeline. The rapture is imminent. No other biblical prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture happens. More on that in a second. Two, the rise of the Antichrist. After the church is taken out of the way, a satanically empowered man will gain worldwide control with promises of peace. He will be aided by another man called the false prophet who heads up a religious system that requires the worship of the Antichrist. Three, the tribulation. A period of seven years as described in the book of Revelation in which God's judgment is poured out on sinful humanity. The Antichrist's rise to power is associated with this time period. Four, the battle of Gog and Magog. In the first part of the tribulation, a great army from the north an alliance with several other countries from the Middle East and Africa, attacks Israel and is defeated by God's supernatural intervention. Some commentators place this battle just before the start of the tribulation. Five, the abomination of desolation. At the midway point of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel and he shows his true colors. The Jews are scattered. Many of them turn to the Lord, realizing that Jesus is indeed their Savior. A great persecution breaks out against those who believe in Christ. Six, the battle of Armageddon. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns with the armies of heaven. He saved Jerusalem from annihilation, and he defeats the armies of the nations who are fighting under the banner of the Antichrist. The Antichrist and the false prophet are captured, and they are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Seven, the judgment of the nations. Christ will judge the survivors of the tribulation, separating the righteous from the wicked as sheep and as goats. The righteous will enter the millennial kingdom. The wicked will be cast into hell. Eight, the binding of Satan. Satan will be bound and held in the bottomless pit for the next thousand years. Nine, the millennial kingdom, where Jesus himself will rule the world with Jerusalem being the capital. This will be a thousand-year period of peace and prosperity on earth. Ten, the last battle. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from his prison for a short time. He will deceive the nations once again, and there will be a rebellion against the Lord that will be quickly defeated. Satan will be cast into the lake of fire never, ever, ever, ever again to reappear. Eleven, the great white throne judgment. This is the final judgment for non-believers. The verdicts are read. All of sinful humanity is cast into the lake of fire. The just punishment for their sin against an infinite, eternal, and holy God. And then 12, the new creation. God completely remakes the heavens and the earth. It's at that time that God wipes away all tears. There will be no more pain, death, or sorrow. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven and the children of God will enjoy eternity with him. Now again, this is the general view that we hold to as a church. That said, 
there are issues. This view believes that in the millennial kingdom, God's people will be making animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem while Christ himself is reigning on his throne in Jerusalem. But why would you do that when the one who's the fulfillment of all those things is right there in your midst? Why return to the shadows that only pointed to the real thing when the real thing, Jesus himself, is right there? Premillennialists say that it's symbolic, but it's still quite confusing. Yeah, it might be true, but still, it's confusing. There are other nuances to this view that bring confusion. And then there's the rapture. So let's talk a little bit about that. First, note this fact. The rapture is a reality. The rapture is a biblical reality. I just saw a clip online this week where a guy said that the church made up the rapture in the 1800s, but that guy is a liar. (laughs) And the church did not make up the rapture in the 1800s because the rapture is in the Bible. Where in the Bible is the rapture? In our next passage in 1 Thessalonians. All right, let's go ahead and look at that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. Please turn there. This is not my sermon on this. We're just going to read it just so you get a feel for it. That's next week. 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Look what it says. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. (coughs) Now, you may look at this and say, I don't see the word rapture in that passage. No, you don't see the word rapture in that passage. In fact, the actual word rapture doesn't even occur in the Bible. However, the word rapture is indeed a word that describes what takes place here in this passage in First Thessalonians. See, the term rapture comes from the Latin word meaning carrying off, a transport, or a snatching away. And that's the word that's the word that describes the event that's happening in this passage where we who believe are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So yes, the rapture is a fact. This catching away to meet the Lord in the air in verse 17 is a biblical fact. It will indeed happen. It's a biblical reality. And uh, we're going to look at that next week. Okay, that said, the specifics of the rapture are very much debated. When Will it happen? This is indeed one of the most controversial issues in the church today. I don't think it should be, but it is. The three primary, because we need to show love with those who may disagree with us about this. But the three primary views on the rapture are pre-trip, where the rapture occurs (coughs) before the tribulation. Mid-trib, where the rapture occurs at or near the midpoint of the tribulation. (coughs) And post-trib, where the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation. Now, from what I understand, for all millennialists, there is no rapture. 
For post-millennialists, there is no rapture or else it's just tied in with the second coming of Christ in judgment after the tribulation, much like what the post-trib people believe, I think. Now, again, there are some nuances to these things. I can only deal with generalities. That said, we're now dealing with those who hold a pre-millennial belief because they certainly do believe in the rapture of the church. So look, the belief is that there's coming a time of great tribulation, such as the world has never seen, found in the book of Revelation, and I personally believe we're very, very close to that. After the tribulation, Christ will return to establish his kingdom on earth, the millennial kingdom, and somewhere within that time frame, there's going to be a rapture, a catching up together of the church, a translation from mortality to immortality for believers. Again, when? Let's pray and end this sermon. All right. Let me, let's talk about that. The post-tribulation camp teaches that the rapture occurs at the end or near the end of the tribulation. Here's what will happen. At that time, the church will meet Christ in the air, and then the church will immediately return to earth for the commencement of Christ's kingdom on the earth. So quick, coming up, meeting him, and then coming right back down. In other words, the rapture and Christ's second coming are to, to set up his kingdom happen pretty much simultaneously. According to this view, the church goes through the entire year seven-year tribulation period as described in the book of Revelation. Post-trib people point out that historically, God's people have experienced times of intense persecution and trial, which is absolutely true. Therefore, it shouldn't be surprising that the church will experience the great tribulation in the end times. Now, we like to write this view off, however, in Scripture... It's hard to separate the talk about the rapture and the return of Christ in glory at the end. And even though the pre-mill people say that Christ will return one time, but he will do it in two phases, the rapture and then the return at the end in judgment, it's still confusing and it's hard to separate those two events. One noted this regarding the differences between the rapture and the second coming. One, at the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. Two, the second coming occurs after the great and terrible tribulation. The rapture occurs before the tribulation. Three, the rapture is a removal of believers from the earth as an act of deliverance. The second coming includes a removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment. Four, the rapture will be secret and instant. The second coming will be visible to all. I say secret and instant, but not to believers. (laughs) Five, the second coming of Christ will not occur until after certain other end time events take place. The rapture is imminent, could take place at any moment. And that helps, but it's still not easy to comprehend and to separate the rapture and the return of Christ in, in judgment. On top of that, or, or to reign. On top of that, scripture teaches that those who are in Christ won't experience the wrath of God. Yes, we will experience trial, and yes, we will experience pain, and yes, we will experience tribulation and hardship from the world, and because of sin, yes, 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 but not God's wrath. No, God removes his people when he pours out his wrath, like he removed Noah and his family before the global flood, and like he removed Lot and his family before he poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, while some judgments during the tribulation specifically target the unsaved, Many other judgments, such as the earthquakes and falling stars and famine, 
that will affect everyone. So the thought is this, that if believers go through the tribulation, they will experience the wrath of God. So this post-trib view contradicts that truth. Also note that it seems that in Revelation 4 through 21, which is the lengthiest description of the tribulation in all of Scripture, the word church never appears. Why not? Because the belief is that the church is gone at that time. It's been raptured. It's been taken up before the tribulation happens. The mid-tribulation view of the rapture teaches that the rapture occurs when? Anybody? Rocket science people here? The middle of the tribulation. Very good. According to this view, the church goes through the first half of the tribulation, but it's spared the worst of the tribulation in the last three and a half years. So God takes His people before He really begins to pour out His wrath. To them, we could even be in the first part of the tribulation right now and not even know it, but there is going to be a point where it's going to be very clear, and and that's when we'll be raptured. They say, hey, before this midpoint of the tribulation, which they say is found in Revelation 11, some terrible things are indeed going to happen because before Revelation 11, we have famine, poisoned rivers, a darkened moon, bloodshed, earthquakes, and torment, and all of those things could be considered the wrath of God. Mid-trib. The pre-tribulation camp teaches that the rapture occurs before the tribulation starts. At that time, the church will meet Christ in the air, And then sometime after that, the Antichrist is revealed and the great tribulation found in the book of Revelation begins. In other words, the rapture and second coming to set up his kingdom are separated by at least seven years. So the return of Christ is one event in two phases. His return for his people at the rapture and then his return in judgment. According to this view, the church does not experience any of the tribulation. Now, besides what I've already said about God not pouring out His wrath on His own, we need to consider the imminency of Christ's return for His own. And this view holds that. What? That Christ's return for His people is the next thing to happen in God's plan. See, imminency speaks of something that's ready to take place, of something that's hanging over one's head, of something that's looming, of something that's impending. The idea here is that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that his return, namely the rapture, is the next thing to happen in line. And in that sense, it is at hand. See, it seems obvious that those in the early church believed that the return of Christ for his people would happen within their lifetime. And guess what? That's the point. That's the point. Dwight Edwards says that the first century church was gripped by the reality that Christ could invade their timetable at any second. Though history proved them wrong in their estimation of Christ's return, they proved beyond question the immense value of possessing this perspective. No wonder they turned the world upside down. He says, may we each regain this purifying perspective of the first century church. So every generation is called to live in light of Christ's imminent return. And look, since Jesus may come for us at any time, since his return for us is imminent, the rapture, we need to be ready for that time today, right here, right now. Alexander McLaren said that the early church was not watching for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. They lived in light of that, and our call is to always be ready. This view of the rapture, the pre-trib view, really lives in light of that, 
and so does the mid-trib view in, in part. So also, I, I think, does the all-millennial all view, which doesn't believe in the rapture, but they are indeed looking for the return of Christ at the end in judgment and glory. Not so much the post-mill view. <laughs> now, are there issues with this pre-millennial view? Yes. That's why so many people all over the board are all over the board when it comes to this issue. But to me, showing a lot of grace, this view is the most biblically based interpretation, and this is where I generally fit. Don't really box me in hook, line, and sinker, but this is my general box. Could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. So, we hold our views, we hold our views even passionately, but again, we show a lot of grace as well, especially when it comes to end time belief. Now, more than anything else, we need to be ready to meet the Lord, and that time could be at any moment, either with Him coming for us, or with us breathing our last breath and going to Him any moment. And wisdom says to be ready today for that moment, and the question is, are you ready Yes, we can get all caught up with talk about the rapture and, and the earthquake that happened and, and everything that's going on in Israel and, and so many other things. But more than anything else, we need to be ready right now. As Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. How? Surrendering to Christ in true saving faith. That's first, right? Get saved. <laughs> We're all sinners who are doomed for wrath, who are doomed for judgment because of our sin. But Jesus saves everyone who truly believes from eternal wrath. He's God the Son. He left heaven. He came here. He took on human flesh. 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in the believer's place as our substitute for sin. And then he rose up from the dead three days later. And look. For all who surrender to Him in true repentant faith, they will be saved from hell and wrath because of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And the question is, won't you surrender to Him today and be saved from the wrath to come? That's first. After that, you all be ready by drawing near, ever near to Him, fighting sin and pursuing the God-honoring, sanctified life, with passion and with fervor because love for Him compels you to honor Him with the precious time that you have left. That is a ready soul. Lord, help us to be ready here. And by the way, I personally believe that the time is near. I believe the time is very near. If I'm wrong, oh, so be it. I'm wrong. But if I'm right, oh man, how exciting for us in Christ. This is an exciting time. And again, the question is, are you ready as a Christian? Don't be messing around. Things are coming to a head. Don't be playing around with God, with sin, with eternal things. No, get serious about the things that truly matter and get serious now because the time is short. As James warns us in James 4, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know that your li- what your life will be like tomorrow. How, how true is that? I mean, tomorrow we could be gone. So James reminds us that life is short, that life is a vapor. Anyone? 
A vapor is short-lived. You see a mist in a, at a moment. A few minutes later, the mist is gone. You, you see steam coming off of your coffee cup, and in just a second, it disappears into the air. Life is like that. In Psalm 90, Moses laments the brevity of life. He compares life to the grass of the field that sprouts in the morning, and by evening, it's faded under the hot sun. He writes this in verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it's gone and we fly away. He's right. That's why Moses prays, teach us to number our days, that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. So, the wise live not for this life, not really, but for the next life, the life which lasts forever, especially in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back, or else in light of the fact that our last breath could just be around the corner. Lord, help us to be ready. And I say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to be a ready people. Help us, Lord, to be eager and excited and ready and prepared. I pray that you would bless us as we ponder these great truths and as we um, continue to look at these things as we work through First Thessalonians. Encourage us, teach us, and help us to be a ready people for your glory. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.